Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in and who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, Jamie Flam. Welcome to Gatekeeper. I am Jamie Flam, and I am the Gatekeeper. Gatekeeper. I'm really excited about this episode of the show. I've got a really inspiring conversation with Barry Katz, who you probably are already familiar with. His industry standard podcast is, well, the industry standard as far as comedy industry podcasts go. Barry is one of the most prolific comedy producers and managers of all time, with a client list that has included Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle, Dane Cook, Tracy Morgan, Jay Moore, and many other comedy luminaries. He started the Boston Comedy Club in New York, and his producer credits are just too long to list. He's helped change what comedy is and how we consume it, and is an exceptional storyteller with stories for days. He's also one of the coolest humans on the planet. So we'll get into that conversation shortly, but first, I have my own story to tell. Buckle up. Very cool. (laughs) So this past Friday was the third and final in a three-week run of variety shows I did on the main stage at the Hollywood Improv called Flamtasia. You know, like Fantasia, but with my name. Because comedy. Pretty cool, right? It was a little weird being back at the club for the first time since I left my job booking the joint in February. But it was also a really nice homecoming, getting to see all the familiar faces and friends and smells and it also really felt good to get back on stage as i've talked about in past episodes i was a performer well before i was ever a comedy club booker and though i continued to perform when i could while i worked at the improv it was generally doing sketch shows or hosting shows as silly characters i have the utmost respect for the art form of stand-up and the hard work it takes to become good at it and so i don't feel comfortable calling myself one i prefer to call myself a triple threat on stage i've got charm i've got charisma likable and sometimes I even have jokes and so with that in mind my goal with Flamtasia was to bring people into my weird world with a very loose and experimental atmosphere where I could mess around on stage with the band improvise with my co-host the multi-talented Drenna Davis play with the audience and let the rest of the lineup do the same All if they right, want it's time to introduce your amazing your fantastic host for this evening Please give it up right now for the world-renowned Mr. Jamie Flam. At a comedy club on a late Friday night, this can admittedly be a little risky. It's the end of the week, people tend to be getting drunk and are tired, and many clubgoers just want to hear tried-and-true relatable jokes. They don't necessarily want to see the rusty former booker go up between comics doing a character called The Lynx that does bad crowd work, followed by the sound of a wildcat and a clavinet for no reason. Lynxer! <laughs> The attendance at the first show was the lightest of the three, just over half full, but the show was really fun. The audience was on board to get weird from the get-go. I felt super comfortable on stage, and the rest of the lineup and I really connected and had a great time. Craig Robinson dropped in to close out the show, jamming with Tiffany Haddish and the house band, ending a really weird and fun and magical night. The second show, the following Friday, was even better. It was a bigger crowd, and I really felt like I was starting to find my rhythm on stage. After the show, some comics that I really look up to were giving me praise, and I was on a high the entire weekend. I even claimed to more than a few people that I was finally discovering my true voice as a performer. What I'd call a blend between silly, weird, 
and confidently vulnerable. I'd found that even when the energy in the room was dipping, I could get the crowd back by being honest in the moment. It felt like I discovered a performance superpower. Maybe I'd picked the wrong path becoming a comedy booker, and I should have been focusing on being a comic the past six years. Hell, maybe I could call myself a stand-up after all. I mean, if I could do this well just messing around, just imagine if I wrote actual jokes. I'd considered doing just that in the days leading up to the third and final Friday night show. But, you know, who has time to write jokes when the internet exists? Plus, I'd actually booked a couple spots that week, so I'd be even more prepared for this one than the first two shows. The first spot was the perfect warm-up for a club gig, hosting an elementary school talent show in the Valley. Now, I don't want to sound too cocky about this, but I fucking murdered. Sure, I was telling jokes I got from fourth graders minutes before the show started. What do you call cheese that you don't own? Cheese that you don't own. We can let a parent answer. Nacho cheese. Knock, knock, who's there? Me! A fucking stone-cold comedy murder machine. My second gig was a proper stand-up show for adults at a cool little speakeasy in Eagle Rock. I wouldn't say I brought the heat like I did at the talent show just hours earlier, but I put my improvisational, stream-of-consciousness ramble with occasional sound effects style to the test, and the small but mighty crowd really seemed to enjoy it. And so I went into my third and final show at the improv, batting a thousand. Five for five in my return to the stage since retiring as a booker. And the best news yet came when I got there. The show was sold out. Word was clearly getting around. Flamtasia was the best show in town. And this Jamie Flam kid, well, he's the second coming of Jerry Seinfeld. Well, without the meticulous joke writing, or hit TV show, or car collection, or coffee. Well, maybe he has coffee. Anyways, I can't wait to see the show. The energy was palpable. Nothing could possibly go wrong. And just as I suspected, I fucking knocked it out of the park again. It was the hottest room I've ever seen. The audience was giving me high fives. The other comics were hugging me and thanking me for having them on the best show in LA. And the biggest comedy producer in the world was there and signed me to a million dollar contract on the spot. How are we doing? Improv. Welcome to Flamtasia. Give it up for this. And that's the story. Hollywood, baby. It works out sometimes. Some nights go your way, others the opposite. (laughs) And what's the deal with people saying nothing could possibly go wrong? Has anyone ever said that and something went right? You only ever say nothing could possibly go wrong when things go wrong. Was that supposed to be a Seinfeld impression? Yeah, I thought it was pretty good, no? Yeah. Great. And what's the deal with Murphy's Law? Who's Murphy? What's Murphy? Is he the same Murphy that invented that bed that comes down from the... Okay, sorry. Well, as you may have assumed, uh, things didn't go as well as I'd hoped. The energy was palpable, and I was super confident. And at the top of the show, I attempted to lure the audience into the world of Flamtasia by having them repeat after me. Repeat after me. Hi! Hi! I, the audience... Commit to having an amazing, fun, and enchanted evening in Flamtasia. Very good. With the current state of affairs in the world, I recognize that by making the choice to be here tonight makes me an optimist. 
As an optimist, I will give every act tonight the benefit of the doubt. Including the host of the show. Jamie Flam, who is making me recite these words right now. I don't know who Jamie is or what Flabantasia is. I came to see Kevin Nealon. He will be here. But I will keep an open mind and an open heart and embrace tonight's experience. At first, they were happy to participate, but maybe it went on a little too long. Getting off stage, I was still fairly confident. Yes, maybe it was a little bit awkward in the room than the first couple shows, but nothing a pro like me couldn't handle, right? And that's when I was confronted by a much-needed reality check. First, my co-host Drennan came up to me in the hallway in a panic. What are we going to do? Ah, let's just have some fun. We'll fuck around some more. I don't know, man. I think we should have a game plan. So, you know, Drennan performs far more regularly than me. So the fact that he was really not comfortable just figuring it out on stage started to get me in my head. Maybe the opening went worse than I thought? Our sound guy, Dax, came out to tell us we had five more minutes. And a tough start, Jamie. We had some trouble getting them on board. But they are a really tight crowd. Dax bounced back to the showroom, and now I was even more in my head. Shit. Finally, a comic friend of mine walked by to go to the bathroom. So the top of the show, I mean, it wasn't the best, but, like, should I be absolutely mortified by it? No, no, no. But, I mean, do I need to worry about it? You can worry about it later. So it's worth worrying about. And by then, Dan Mintz was wrapping up on stage, and it was already time to get back up there. Okay, time to get to work. Time to get this audience back. I jumped on stage and said things into the microphone that I thought were funny. But now I was hyper-aware of the response from the room, or lack thereof. My confidence shrinking, it seemingly got worse from there. In a moment of desperation, I went blue and made a joke about poop. No, That's putting someone on, on the spot. Jamie. That is some, putting someone on the spot. I'm sorry to ask them to describe their poop on stage. We have a winner. That's Surprisingly, where we people actually responded to the poop stuff. But instead of seizing the opportunity like a more seasoned comic and going into my canon of poop jokes, I played to the back of the room, admitting the hackiness of it, losing them again. Note to self, canon of poop is very funny. I did get them back with a boner reference that I had in my back pocket. Or should I say my front pocket? <laughs> Speaking of good-looking people, um, this crowd. Yeah, very good-looking. Nothing's working. Even compliments. No, you guys really are very hot. I I know it sounds like I'm just picking up on you, but you really are. Maybe that's why I'm a little bit off. It's like a very attractive crowd. I'm trying to keep my boner down. (laughs) Fuck. It's the same thing with the poop thing. I did it twice. You don't talk about poop, you don't talk about boners. But then lost them again with a forced moment of sincerity. I'm a 40-year-old man hosting a show in front of 200 people right now. Who are looking at me right now silently. That's what's happening right now in this room. I got off stage and told Kevin Nealon he was on next. I don't remember exactly what he said to me, but it was along the lines of, well, that was interesting. By interesting, I could only assume he meant that I was bombing. In that moment, anyway. I don't know that I bombed bombed, but, well, let's just say that in a room of roughly 200 people, at least 100 were simply not completely on board to take this trip to Flamtasia. At least 100 people were not on board to watch a rusty performer attempt to ramble his way into laughs and improvise silly songs about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, you know, shit like that. At one point, I had Drennan go up alone between acts so I could take a breather and give the crowd a breather for me. When I got back on stage after the next act went up, I asked if the audience missed me. Guys, I took a few minutes off the show earlier. Gotta ask you, 
Did you miss me? Dun dun. Did you miss me? I'm not sure if you could hear that, but some people actually yelled out no. I couldn't believe it. Likeable Jamie Flam in his enchanting world of magic was getting heckled. I toughed out the rest of the show and tried to have as much fun as I could and decided to let the crowd leave before getting into the freestyle rap jam part of the show. Yeah, it didn't seem like this was a freestyle rap jam kind of audience. About 20 or 30 people stuck around, and as the room became more intimate, I did some crowd work not involving any sound effects. One couple that stuck around said they didn't hate me at all. Another couple said they'd come the week before and came back to see me and loved every minute of it. It didn't totally get me out of my head, but it was a nice consolation at the moment. We finished up the rap jam, and I went home, crushed. I'd sold more tickets, made more money than the past two shows combined, but I couldn't sleep. What went wrong? The lighting wasn't perfect. We were rushed at the top of the show. The audience was awful and wouldn't know good comedy if it pooped right out of a cannon and into their faces. Fuck them, fuck comedy clubs, fuck comedy, and fuck my life. Why was I doing comedy again? I'm a hack. Nobody likes me. I should move to Alaska and work in a cannery. Alone. Cold. A life that I deserve. Over the years, as the booker at the Hollywood Improv, comedians have asked me for tips and advice on dealing with performing and how to deal with a situation just like this. And on Friday night, I ignored all the advice I would have given them. I made amateur mistakes that I would have called someone else out on immediately had I seen it happening. If you're a regular listener, you can see that I fell into the exact same trap so many comics fall into after a lackluster performance. I made it about me. I took the audience's response to me personally. And so just a few hours removed from feeling I had it all figured out, I was spiraling into my own personal hell, questioning every decision I'd ever made and genuinely contemplating quitting comedy because I was a worthless human. It's plain to see that I was looking for validation instead of connection. So the next day, I went through the same exercise I've told countless comics to go through after their sets to make their failure less personal. Instead of asking myself why the audience didn't like me last night, I asked myself why the audience and I didn't connect last night. I wanted to turn it into an opportunity to learn and evolve as a performer, and a human for that matter. So why didn't the audience and I connect last night? First, I was cocky. Yeah, I had a few decent shows and thought I'd figured it all out. Granted, I performed a lot in my career, but not with enough consistency in this capacity or with enough recent reps to not go up with at least a game plan especially at a comedy club where every show and every audience is a clean slate. So it was folly to think that without preparation, I could possibly be immune to fallibility. Note to self, pretty good job with the alliteration there, Jamie. (laughs) Note to self, you're getting cocky again. Wait, did I just give myself a note to self inside of a note to self? That's like a note to self-inception. Noteception. Well done, Jamie. No deceptions are going to be huge. Jamie, you're getting cocky again. Wait, am I stuck in a loop? Is this Looper? Is that Bruce Willis? Has he been dead the whole time? Or is he a superhero? Whatever happened to M. Night Shyamalan? I think he must have figured out that doing the same hacky premise over and over and over again with some twist was just getting old and tired. Oh, I'm M. Night Shyamalan. Jamie. Huh, oh. You're doing it again. Okay. 
And second, I didn't take any time to properly read the room. Even when you call something Flamtasia and put a really cool graphic and description on the ticket link, when it comes to comedy clubs, most people are looking past the show name and straight to the lineup, if they even look at the names at all. For many, they just want to come out and laugh and expect a well-curated affair. I open the show with an unorthodox call and response, launched into some lackluster, contextless crowd work, and made a series of meta-comedy references. I didn't give the audience what they wanted, was unable to convince them that I was what they wanted, and then failed to change gears when they didn't respond. They didn't want any characters or bits. They didn't want to be challenged. They just wanted to have some drinks and see comics tell jokes. As host, it was my job to serve the show, to keep the audience engaged and energized, not continually bring them into a sidebar with my self-conscious ego, on this particular occasion anyway. Some people like that a lot. There's a time and place for everything, and this was not the time or the place. Though a quick reminder that a few people did really enjoy it. As soon as I started analyzing the show more subjectively in its way, I felt a million times better. The further I distanced my ego from the show, the less terrible I felt, and the more I realized that ultimately, and maybe ironically, it was a fantastic show. As hard as it was to do, I watched the show recording, and no, it wasn't my best night as a performer, but it was far from my worst. Those moments of dread on stage that felt like they were minutes were actually just seconds, and I got even more laughs than I remembered. I was fine, even more than fine at times. It helps that I surrounded myself with supreme talent. Dan Mintz, Drennan Davis, Zach Sherwin, Nikki Glaser, and Kevin Nealon all brought it. People left happy, and they got their money's worth. So for all the young comedians that listen to this show, let this be a reminder that it's rarely as bad as it seems, and no one else is thinking about it, much less replaying those moments we can't seem to shake. Stop being so hard on yourself. You're a good person trying to do something extremely difficult. Just don't forget to set yourself up for success by preparing and respecting the audience in your craft, which in some cases means writing some jokes. And for comedy fans listening, it is a good idea to find out more about what show you are going to before you buy tickets because not all comedy shows are created equally. When it's Flamtasia, well, things are going to get weird. Or, as Kevin Nealon calls it, interesting. So there you have it, guys. Thus concludes uh, the magical adventures or the longest advertisement for Flamtasia ever, a show that I forgot to promote on this podcast and has no scheduled future dates at this time. So with all that said, I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation I had with Barry Katz. We actually recorded this interview back in December, which was a couple months before I left the improv because I made allusions to my exit during the conversation. And we didn't want to get no spoilers out there. So here's my conversation with Barry Katz. Enjoy. Welcome to Gatekeeper. I'm with Barry Katz in this beautiful conference facility at 10100 Santa Monica. Hi, Barry. How you doing, man? I'm so excited we're here in the industry standard podcast studio with pictures of animals probably not found in nature. And it's good to be here. Why do you call this show the Gatekeeper? Because it's a title that I've been given by like my boss, Aaron von Schoenfeld, who you know. Of course. Like, You're a gatekeeper. It sounds like a name from The Sound of Music. You know what I mean? It does. It's kind of scary when she says that. As a Jew, you hear that name. It just <laughs> makes you want to. As a fellow Jew, I, I, I understand. Um, so you're the gatekeeper of the improv. I guess I am. I was never fully uh, into that title. It, it, it seems like a lot of weight. And especially, I, I, Patton Oswalt gave a state of the comedy address at Montreal a few years ago talking about how gatekeepers aren't what they used to be but it's a title that 
you know, I wear it with pride sometimes, and sometimes it's one that I want because I believe everyone is their own gatekeeper um, to their own success. But I wanted to talk to people like you who have uh, by far the craziest resume I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) You've done everything. Why are you here with me right now? Because I believe in people who want to do great things. If I can do something during a lunchtime when I'm available, I want to be able to help. That's why I started my podcast, because when you sit in these rooms with these network presidents or even artists, and you just, you leave, you get in your car, and you're like, I cannot believe I was the only person who got to hear that for an hour and a half. What, Chris Albrecht, I was sitting there with the guy and nobody got to hear this, or Doug Herzog, or Judd Apatow, or the late Gary Marshall, Norman Lear. I mean, you can't even believe when I used to have these meetings with these guys, and I was like, my God, wouldn't this be great if people all over the world could understand and know the gems that these guys say? It's not just about the entertainment business, granted. I think it's exciting if you are in the entertainment business and you hear this stuff, but I get responses from people all over the world. They're lawyers from 7-Eleven managers to people who work in the post office, people who work in a situation where they just want to get to the next level. How do I get to the next level? So it's exciting to know that it's helped. And so you actually fascinate me because... (laughs) I wanted to talk about something with you, and this is your show. Take over. But I think that there's something that really is a difficult thing for everybody in any realm of the business, and that's figuring out how to not just be able to keep the relationship so the artist or whoever you have in your life keep coming back to you. But also, while you're doing that, there's forces in the trees there's snipers in every tree, and they're trying to figure out how to take you down. And the world is cyclical. So, yes, Coca-Cola has been the number one soda for 100 years, and it hasn't changed. Their market share has changed, though. Nike, obviously huge, but then Under Armour comes along and takes a huge bite out of it. And here in Hollywood, what's fascinating is there's three major comedy clubs here. There are other comedy clubs that do business and do wonderful business, but I'm talking about within a three-mile radius, there's three comedy clubs in Hollywood. There's the Laugh Factory on Sunset, 8001 Sunset, the Comedy Store, probably a quarter of a mile down the street across from the Mondrian Hotel. And then there's the Improv, which is south of that, probably about a mile and a half to two miles on Melrose, closest to La Cienega, probably the closest major street, a half a mile down from there. And so you have these comedy clubs. What happens is if you were to track the 30 years that they've all been in business, you're going to find that certain comedy clubs did better business than others during those years. And so maybe in the 80s, no one could touch the comedy store. You have Richard Pryor there every night. And even in the late 90s and late 80s, you had Dice Clay there every night. And he was the biggest star in the world. So they had a a huge place there. They were a big situation. The Laugh Factory, slow and steady, building and building. And then during the, probably the 2000s, 
to around 2010 with Dane Cook and him being the biggest guy out there. And he loved the Laugh Factory. Jamie was the only guy who really, in the very beginning, gave him his due. Obviously changed since then. That club was by far the biggest club out of the three. And in the other times, and the off times, when Seinfeld was coming into the improv all the time and all these people, and interspersed among these years, the improv has been hugely successful and been the number one place on the block. So go with this. I know I'm taking a long time here, but this is fascinating to me because you're the gatekeeper. (laughs) I'm not going to mention any names because I don't think it's fair, but it could be argued that two years ago, the comedy store was number three out of the three places. Mitzi Shore, who owns the place, I don't mind mentioning her name because she's iconic, has been very sick. The sons have helped take over, and the business was struggling. They had a guy booking the room who had probably done a phenomenal job throughout his career and wonderful, had a great relationship with Mitzi. But one day they made a change a couple of years ago because for whatever reason, it wasn't working. You could talk about the guy who was doing it before, say this or that, but whatever it is, they made a change, a very difficult change emotionally for Mitzi and for the group because it involves somebody who was like a son to her. So they make the change and they give the job to a guy that has about as much experience in the comedy business as Donald Trump has in the political (laughs) business, which is a weird situation when you give the gatekeeper job to somebody who it could be argued has never really booked a show in his life has never been really exposed to the national comedy scene, has been around the comedy store a long time, and has seen artists and has relationships with artists, which is one of the most key things. A lot of artists, too, were not working there anymore because they were tired of the way it was being run. And it could be argued that within a two-year span, this comedy club that was number three out of three comedy clubs, a fucking distant third, Mm -hmm is now giving the improv and the laugh factory fits because all the people that they lost in the relationships for the past regime, they came back and they're working there and they're helping to build this place back up to where it was. These artists see the improv as a place, hey, that's the stone. That's like a building. That's like a mountain. They don't need my help. The Laugh Factory, they're like, I see the renovations and the improv and the lab. They're doing great. They don't need my help. But then, for some reason, this young guy has come in here and put somebody like you, who's the gatekeeper of the improv, and whoever the gatekeeper is at the Laugh Factory, I'm not going to mention names, before you know it, within two years, you turn around, you're like, what the fuck is happening here? wait a second, I just heard there were 400 people in the comedy store showroom five nights in a row. Wait a second, what is Bill Burr doing over there? Bill Burr hangs out with us. Joe Rogan did that show that, what? How come he's not doing this? And so a guy like you and Aaron 
and also at the Laugh Factory are looking around sort of like Hillary Clinton looked around at Donald Trump. You guys are 30-year veterans. There's people working around the scene at the Laugh Factory, been in it 30 years. People at the Improv been around it a long, long time. And now this person comes in who has no experience really and is in a situation which really puts gatekeepers like you saying, what happened and how do I turn this around? And so I know this is your show, <laughs> but I'm fascinated by how, and maybe I think your audience will be fascinated on how you deal with the ongoing situation where you stay the course. Because I always say it's not getting there, it's staying there. And so it's cyclical. Somebody always has to be on the rise, somebody has to be on the way down, and somebody normally stays the same. You look at late night talk shows, the same situation. It's always the same. You look at what Kimmel's doing, rising. You look at what Conan's doing, falling. Samantha B rising. Fallon dropping a little bit. Colbert, believe it or not, rising a little bit. So how as the gatekeeper do you deal with these situations that are hardcore business situations that I think people all over the world want to know, how do I stay on top? How do I look at what people are doing and why they're doing it? And how do I combat it and keep the relationships and make my place the relevant, amazing place it's always been? Great question. <laughs> well, I think you said it. it's cyclical for sure. I mean, I've only been there six years, but I've seen it go back and forth a bunch of times. Um, I relate to the booker of the comedy store who um, was the first guest on this podcast, um, <clears throat> Adam. And when I was asked to book the main room, having come from the lab, which was their small, more alti space, I didn't have any experience either. And they took a chance on me and I had to learn the business of a mainstream comedy club. And I've learned a ton in that time. Um, and we were really hitting our stride about four years ago, maybe three years ago, where the lab was really starting to hum. A, a beautiful community was developing, tons of great shows. You know, the huge drop-ins from Robin Williams and Louis C.K. When, when he was in town, he would headline the Hollywood Improv. Um, the store was an afterthought. And then a couple things happened. A few things happened, because I do think about this a lot. I'm very competitive, um, even though we have a very great symbiotic relationship with the comedy store. Um, but we first, we did the big renovation about three and a half years ago, which I applaud the, um, I mean, you know, it was time for an update. I don't think we needed to have a roadhouse restaurant in place of the classic improv bar. So I think that might have alienated a lot of comics who were losing their cheers. Um, that was an interesting decision that was made that shocked me. Obviously, there's people in the company who are the powers that be. It's not just one person that makes that mm. decision. It's like when you see a movie coming out with Richard Dreyfuss 10 years ago, Krippendorf's Tribe, and you say to yourself, okay, really? A lot of people came together and said, that's the title that's going to make me want to go to that movie? And most people were busy that day right. and didn't get to the movie. So when you make a decision to do that and take away, like I said, their cheers, they could have just updated their cheers. Absolutely. Do you know why they made that decision? Well, it's, you know, I think a big thing, and you said it too, it's like the comics, um, you know, they'll always come to the improv. You know, Chris Rock headlined two shows in the lab this past Monday, and it was magical. Um, but the comedy store, 
even though it is becoming a little bit more corporate, you know, like any business, they're, they're bringing in consultants and they want to, you know, up the revenues and all these things. But the improv, you know, there's 30 improvs or 25 and it's a massive company. And so you have people making decisions that are, you know, sitting in an office building across town that go there once a year and they don't understand the culture. And that's one of the reasons I feel like we weathered the storm um, is that you have me there, you have Rita, who's our general manager now, who love Rita. Rita's the best. And we, but we love comedy. We love comedians. And, you know, we had to hold comedians' hands. I mean, you, I mean, there's so many things, and I don't want to, to turn this into, um, you know, shitting on the improv because I love it, and it's been my home and my family. Time out. Did it seem like I was shitting on the improv? No, I loved, no, no, no. I love the I improv. I can go into this place, but maybe make a note. <laughs> the improv is the fabric of my life. The comedy store, to me, establishments reflect life and people. So there's people you meet who are the light. If you're a guy, a woman will walk in the room and, you know, she'll have that charisma and that light and it gets almost like the heavens open up and the sun comes down. And then there's times where you're in business or something, somebody walks in the room and the hair on the back of your neck stands up. There is a dark, dark vibe. And then there's the people who are in the middle where the light is kind of fighting the darkness and it's sort of like a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. I always looked at the comedy store as the darkness. Believe it or not, I always looked at the improv as a combination of the light and the darkness. And I always looked at the Laugh Factory. I'm not saying behind the scenes it's this way, but I always looked at the vibe, the way the guy tried to present the image of the Laugh Factory, almost like a spiritual, this is the light. Buddy, you come into my place, this is the light. So not to say that it is that way behind the scenes, that's up to anybody to judge, but that's the way I always looked at it. I think most people would agree with that. I was going to say the Laugh Factory, even just like behind the stage, is that big, bright light. (laughs) And I think that's a pretty apt description because, I mean, the improv, you know, obviously started with Bud and has evolved. And certainly in my time there, it has been like a lot of that dark, you know, fighting the the light and, you know, these people on the ground, like I said, Rita and myself and dozens of others who it's all about the comedy. And so, and the biggest thing, you know, in addition to the the new restaurant was, you know, they, they got rid of our second room, our lab space, which to me was where you develop talent, where you develop ideas. I didn't know they got rid of the lab space. I thought the lab was always a part of that bar. Well, it just became a second bar. So we opened a second bar and I don't know, it was about a year and a half or two years where it was just this weird place because, you know, comics didn't know where to go or to hang out because we had two bars. One was a restaurant, one was this bar. And so about just over a year ago, we reopened the lab as a showroom. And that reinvigorated me as an artistic director to do all these things, develop talent, bring in um, acts that you wouldn't normally see. I saw a show there within the last six months, Bob Goldthwaite and Kyle Kinane was Well, Bobcat's been doing a show um, every week for this past year, um, every Tuesday night at 10. Shows. Big part of my life, Bob yeah. Goldthwaite. He was my roommate, actually. Really? Yes. That's, well, and that's in Boston? In Boston. We used to have people from San Francisco coming in and out. I'll never forget this one time. <laughs> this guy, I don't know how, if it was his friend or somebody's friend, this guy, Joe Campiolo, who was a... I guess an openly gay comic and he was staying with us and 
you know, I'll never forget like walking by one of the rooms and him and Bob or this guy, Dan Spencer from San Francisco having a conversation. I just walked by at this time and, and you know how you can look behind somebody. So I'm looking from behind Joe <laughs> at Bob and Dan as I am walking by and I hear Joe Campiola say, have you ever made love in an alley? <laughs> just looking at Bob's face. It was just to me, I'll never forget it. <laughs> what was his face? Why did I have this guy stay here? <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. Go on. Um, where was I? So how does the improv weather the storm? I feel like they have. They they have been the steady, you know, this, this year, the, our first quarter was the biggest quarter in the history of the club. And for me, like, this is very, that's very much a purist and just wants every night, seven nights a week, two rooms going all night, just great comedy in both rooms. I had to kind of let that go early on because the improv is, you know, it's also the political playground of the comedy industry. So, you know, I'm booking as much as I can, but I, I'm putting up stuff for agents and managers and for my bosses and for all sorts of people. And I've come to understand that the improv needs to be that. And it's a place where you might find a YouTube star one night and Louis CK the next night. And as much as I want it to be, you know, the, the playground every night for comics, um, it's just not what it's built to be at this point. And so it'll weather it because it's willing to take chances. And the, the spin that I've tried to put on it is trying to, uh, you know, bridge the gap between the independent comedy world and the mainstream world. And it's the only club where you'll see Dan Cook on the stage at the same time in one room as Bobcat Goldweight in the next room. And so it's that dichotomy of really trying to celebrate what's happening in comedy in the city of Los Angeles that I think sets it apart. Um, and then the comedy store, it, it's 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 the training ground for comics, and it's the place where they get their chops. And it's uh, and there's all the nooks and crannies to hang out. And we're trying to get that back at the Improv, but that's the place you want to hang out. I also think Mark Maron's podcast taking off, and him, you know, talking about the comedy store every night, and Joe Rogan was a big factor in in getting people back to the store. But I'm so competitive. So earlier this year, when you know the club was doing better than ever. I would stress out because I would get on my Instagram at the end of the night and my Twitter and look at all the drop-ins at the store and then almost like, you know, battling with them. Like, well, they had Chris Rock drop in, but we had Chappelle. That never happened, so I shouldn't use that as an example. But, uh, you know, I was very competitive. And so it's, you know, it's someone that, you know, you wants to have the best club in town. And they're not mutually exclusive. I think there, there's room for all the clubs. Comedy's doing better than ever. And... You know, I'm excited about what's happening at the store. What's the best show you ever saw in your life? That's a two-part question. Because the best performance I ever saw in my life, and it had significance for me, is something that people might not think that way. But I started off in a comedy club in Boston called Play It Again Sam's, which was a basement comedy club at the most held 150 jammed in low ceiling, maybe six foot six ceiling, corner room. So the stage was in the corner, paneling brick, just shitty broken chairs. And, you know, and I was doing the door and booking the club and doing a reverb for a guy singing probably Bombaleo or something like that in the comedy way and people getting drunk and doing blow in the back room and just a really gutting it out comedy club existence. And then I was fortunate enough to 
have Dane Cook believe in me as much as I believed in him. We had a plan. At the most, maybe he was selling out a 500-seater. And when things started going crazy, developing the social media, which he was the first comedian ever to do that, we took a chance and went to HBO and Chris Albrecht and sold him and in the round show at Boston Garden, knowing that he'd never sold hard tickets more than 500 seats. I was fortunate enough that Chris believed in what I was saying and what we could do. Brought on Marty Kallner, who's probably one of the greatest variety director-producers of all time, along with Joel Gallon, who's the other one. Had a budget that was in the millions, never before had a comedy special for that. 22 cameras and... He pressed a button and sold out the first show in less than three days with no advertising, nothing, just for his fans. No public who didn't know him or didn't know his code couldn't get in. And then the second show we rolled over, and I think it sold out in about a week or eight days. So he sold 38,000 tickets without the benefit of a promoter. We had a promoter, Bill Blumenreich, but he didn't have to do anything. I'm talking about to get people in. I remember calling my mom and saying, if I could send a car service and have her come out from Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And she was probably 80 years old, but got her out there and struggled to get her out, walk out to her seat. And I'm walking around and I'm seeing people come in. And this is a place where I saw the Celtics and the Bruins and just look at Dane before the show. And I said, you did it. And I'll never forget. He looked at me and he squared me in the shoulders and looked me in the eyes and he said, no, we did it. And to watch how he performed that night, like a boxer in a ring and performing for all those people. And the second show, I think he did two hours and 45 minutes. And to see my mom sitting through all this comedy at such an older age and loving it, that to me was the most memorable show because I accomplished a lot of my goals that I wanted to accomplish as a manager and a producer that had never been done before. No artist had ever sold out two shows in one night in an arena. No musical artist or any artist ever tried to do that. And then he did it at Madison Square Garden and then again at Boston Garden and again at Madison Square Garden. But that first Boston show and that special, the performance level that he was in, the zone he was in, was incredible. If you're asking me the performance that sticks with me that I'm most proud of that blows me away, would surprise people maybe. Getting emotional. When you're a manager, you represent artists and you do the best you can. You ride the bull as long as you can. People, their personal relationships that are wonderful but just like the dry cleaner that you love or that favorite restaurant you have, sometimes you stop going and sometimes the relationships end. And Chappelle, I represented for eight years and just the greatest eight years that you could ever have. But sometimes you just don't know if, you know, what do these people think of you? Or they, they think you're a fucking asshole. They stopped working with you because they don't like you or they don't feel you're relevant or they don't feel you did a good job. And so about three weeks ago, I was in New York, and I had heard that Dave had set up some show at a place called The Cutting Room, some room on 32nd Street, east side, that 
I mean, it isn't even a comedy club. It isn't even a van. I don't even know what it is. It's a bar with a back room. You need a barbershop in L.A. on Monday night. <laughs> yeah, so. But it held about 300 people, I guess, they put in there. He invited me to go and hang out there and watch. He told me he just agreed to do Saturday Night Live, and he invited me to come. And I saw him perform that night, and just so special. And you're standing there. You don't really know what you mean to somebody. You're there, but you're like, did he just have me come here just to come here? And so he's walking off stage, and there's this huge entourage with him. And he's walking by, and he sees me, and he steps out, and he says, come on, come down here. You want me to come down? Yeah, come on down there. And we walk downstairs, and there's all these people. And he takes me in the dressing room, and there's one couch, and he says, sit down next to me. And there's all these people milling around this dark dressing room. The only light is from cell phones. It's like an opium den without the opium. The door opens, the light blinds you. You're like, holy shit. And we're sitting there talking about how the feelings of not anxiety, but like I haven't done television in 10 years and he calls me B. I don't know, B. I don't know how it's going to go. Is it going to be hurtful? Or And I said, Dave, you're Dave Chappelle. I said, this SNL can hurt many actors and actresses' careers. They do a bad job. The movie doesn't open. People constantly saying they're not funny or they're not that. I said, you could take a shit on the stage (laughs) and your business and your legend would increase. I said, you could fuck up every sketch and people will still talk about you and go see you. I said, Lorne Michaels could do a press conference saying you will never see Dave Chappelle on SNL again and will help you. You have nothing to worry about. You turned down $50 million. Guys who turned down $50 million don't have to worry about what anybody thinks. You do what you want to do. And if there's something that they tell you not to do, do it anyway. You're Dave fucking Chappelle. And those moments that I had with him there, I am emotional about this. He was talking about how, and I'm paraphrasing, but when I saw his set, we talked about how the set was almost like part comedy show, part Martin Luther King, part commencement address and how it was a different kind of comedy that I saw him construct for this show. And so when I watched the monologue on SNL, even though it wasn't the kind of comedy where it's, you know, Def Jam, we're jumping out of our seats and we're high-fiving and chest-bumping, it was a very low-level kind of response because that's the way he orchestrated it for the message. To me, I was more proud, and that was probably one of the greatest performances that I can ever remember in my lifetime. And if I ever want to show anybody what it's like to make an impact in this business, I'd say turn off your phones, lock yourself in a room, and watch that set over and over again. Because that was the kind of set that not only was funny, but introspective, It gave meaning to what the world should aspire to be. 
it gave praise for somebody who's leaving a job and gave hope to somebody coming in a job. And it was just one of the most powerful things I'd ever seen. And I was really proud of him. And I was proud to know that I'd been a small part of his life and that he felt enough of me to invite me to come see him prepare for it. Well, that's amazing. Like I, I, I have a thousand questions here. I think we'll have time for like three more. <laughs> and I want to pick them carefully, but... Um, I don't mind no, I could just setting another... Mesmerize. <laughs> so how does a comic get to shitting on SNL and surviving the storm status? How many comics have that status right now? Is it just Dave Chappelle? You know, <laughs> Dave Chappelle is like... I mean, he's like if Lenny Bruce, David Bowie... Prince had a baby and was a comedian. The way the parts of Bowie was an artist, he just has these things about him, but he's affable. And you just meet him and he's just an aw shucks kind of guy. He believes in what he believes in, but it's interesting when I'm talking to you and I want to share this with you that's so odd and I don't know why it is. I really like him. I have this feeling like I'm almost trembling inside talking about it. And I don't know why it's never happened to me before. And maybe it's your awe-inspiring presence. But <laughs> I think the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because everyone listening to this, or almost everyone listening to this, they don't know anyone in their lives who have turned down $50 million dollars. They don't know anyone who's turned down $500 probably or 5000 or 50000 Most people take the money and make sacrifices because they need the money and they're like, fuck it, I can just, I'll take the hit and, you know, so what? I'm working the shitty job. They're paying me. Ah, well, God, the kids, you know, that private school, this corporate job. So what if they just want me to be clean I know I don't do that kind of humor, but it's $100,000. Let me just do it. I'll never forget Dane Cook. This is one of the first things that happened with him that I really respect that nobody even knows the story. I booked him for a corporate event. This is early on, $150,000. It was three corporate events in a row, three days. All he had to do was 30 minutes each one. He does the first one. He gets a standing ovation from the whole group. He's not a corporate comic. He never was, but I convinced him to do it. The guy comes in back, gives him the check, the first check for 50000 He says, listen, Dane, that was incredible. Listen, I was wondering for the next two, if you could just do me a favor and don't swear for the next two, that's all I ask of you. And Dane looked at the guy and he ripped up the check in probably 25 pieces and put it back in his hand. And he said, you keep that. Find somebody else for the other two. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced something like that. And Dave, $50 million, it's like people might say, well, he was not stable when he did that. He wasn't thinking clearly or he went to Africa or this and that. You know, I don't care if he was under duress or if he was on some kind of IV line of hallucinogenics or if he was clear. 
it doesn't matter. Nobody turns down $50 million unless they believe in themselves a thousand percent. And this guy never wavers believing in himself and was just rewarded with a $60 million deal with Netflix. So it all comes together. And that's why, to me, he garners the most respect. Of course, there's artists that can go on and give him a run for his money in terms of the performance. Well, you put somebody on who's a high-energy act, just rapid fire, of course it might be a little difficult for somebody like that to follow that kind of thing. But his status, he can bring the crowd wherever he wants them to, and it doesn't matter. So I would say that he is in another league. But there are other guys who I think, you know, I don't want to just mention clients of mine because I think even though probably the artist would say, why don't you mention me? Obviously, I believe in them and I work with them because I think they're great. So I'm not going to shine their asses here. So I'll just mention people who I don't work with or who I have worked with in the past. I think Jim Jeffries is probably, in terms of all of the comedians working, I think even Chappelle would sit down and agree that the guy is at his level in terms of the conceptual work that he's doing and how he puts it together. Obviously, Jim's comedy is very dark and it's not for everybody, but I think that there isn't a comic that I know that wouldn't sit down with a true serum in their veins and say that Jim Jeffries at least white comedians would say there's him and then there's everybody else. I'd say him, Chappelle, Chris obviously is always been one of my favorites and will always remain to be one of the most special people that I've ever met in comedy. And I love watching him. And from the moment I saw him do his first five minute set, which for those of you in your audience who don't know, was an expose in five minutes of how Bill Cosby was racist and Fat Albert was a racist animated show. Incredible routine, if you ever get a chance to look it up. When you're starting your career on that note, there's nowhere to go but up. And although many people would say there's nowhere to go but down. But yeah, so there's people like that that I really love. I think the thing about comedy that's kind of a little bit it's never been bigger. Comedy's never been bigger. But the elephant in the room is the fact that there is a huge, huge gap between the extraordinary comics and the rest of the comedians. A huge gap. It's massive. Is that all work ethic? And obviously talent. But what, what well, do you think accounts for that? Like? Dave might never let me into a show again if I say this. I hope Dave would agree with me if I say that his work ethic is not, if one is the lowest work ethic and a hundred is the comic who works the hardest, I would hope that he would say he's not a hundred. He's an amazing natural talent. He works hard, but he's got the gift. And sometimes the hardest part about our lives is like, you know, when I was on the swim team in college, I was captain of the swim team. I could have the same physique, the same weight, the same build as another guy. And he could kick my ass and he could just not do any practices, not do anything, just a natural. And I couldn't beat him because he's just got the gift. And I have to work hard to be equal to him. 
and I never get there. But that guy fucks around and he goes to the championships. He's going to run to a guy, his build that also has the gift and he's going to lose. So there are a lot of hard workers, but hard work doesn't translate into what comes off the pen onto the paper. You watch Gary Gullman, the stuff comes off the paper, pen onto the paper in a way that it doesn't come off anybody else's. You might say, well, Gary Gullman isn't of the level of this person or that. And sometimes that has to do with the confidence level that an artist has, how they carry himself, what they feel about himself, the battles that they have internally and how they fight those demons, and sometimes it's hard to overcome. Larry Moss, the great acting coach, used to say that every great artist has a hole blown through them. Something happened in their life, and the performances fill the hole, but then when the performance is done, the hole empties. So in order to be a great artist or considered a great artist in our world, before Bill Hicks, you'd say that was the greatest comedian. He didn't have to be an actor. But in our world now, multimedia, you have to be able to book significant acting jobs or else you're not going to be considered in that world. And even if legit went two seasons with Jim Jeffries, anybody who saw the show legit, which was also written and produced by a guy named Peter O'Fallon, you looked at a show that was an original show that took a guy that appears like he has no heart and gave him a little bit of heart all the way through with these crazy cast of dark characters. And that's what helps make a person get to the next level. If you're on television every week, do you think Aziz Ansari would be the star he is today if he wasn't a series regular on that show? I'm not discounting Aziz because he's brilliant and he does an amazing job in all areas. But there's more roles for fucking Brad Williams than there are for Aziz Ansari. And for those of you who don't know, Brad Williams is he's about four foot four. You have to book these acting jobs. And Aziz Ansari, I believe he was doing 1 a.m. spots at the Comedy Cellar. And he goes in and auditions for this gig Many people book gigs, but that show happened to go. And then when it went, he made his impact on the show and he stood out on the show and he became a huge star. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the gap I'm talking about, it's about what comes off the pen. Now, Stephen Wright will always be in the conversation with me as a guy who's in that realm. The reason why people don't talk about Stephen Wright as much is because he chose to live his life in a different way. He lives on Block Island off of Rhode Island, and he performs maybe once a month at a theater for 2,500, 3,000 people, and he lives the life he wants to live. So he's not in the conversations because he's not out there all the time. But I think you have to do the kind of material that blows people the fuck away and is completely undeniable that this person is in another league. You know, Gerard Carmichael, comedians love to shit on other comedians. It's so fascinating. It's not his time. What the fuck? How do he's 24? I, I've been doing this for 20 years. What the fuck? Hey, he got the show because he's black. That's why. 
You're not taking white guys anymore. No, motherfucker. Watch NBC. They haven't had a black guy on the network in how many years? Gerard Carmichael would go on stage and you, know, you can always tell you're doing something special as a comedian because, you know, the room is the room. People are milling in and out. Then somebody goes on stage and the minute somebody goes on stage, it's literally like the fucking bomb went off at the Boston Marathon and you're running towards the showroom. And you have to see, what is this guy going to say? What's he going to do? And they say, ah, it's not his time. It's not his time. Then he gets a development deal for his own show, which I've done over 100 development deals, and I'm here to tell you that 3% of them go, maybe 5%. And I've been fortunate that in this 3% business, a lot of the ones I've been involved in have gone, thank God. So he gets the show. There's no black artist on NBC, really. And the show gets on. And does the job. And he does a great job. And people love the show. And it's now going to go into its fourth year. Not bad for a guy who is not his time. So when I hung out with Magic Johnson one day, I'll never forget what he told me. And it applies to every comedian or artist or anyone in any walk of life out there. He said to me, what's made me successful, Barry, in business and in sports is two words. And if everybody just did that, in great shape. I said, what are the two words? He said, over deliver. So the comics where the big gap is are the ones that are completely over delivering. Yes, you see comedians out there who you know are brilliant and are doing something special. And you might say, well, could this person be doing more? And with a few breaks here and there, they could. I'll mention somebody that I work with because I don't think it'll offend anybody. Kirk Fox. There's nobody who watches Kirk Fox. Comic, booker, I don't care if you're the waitress or somebody from El Segundo. There's nobody who watches Kirk Fox's set and says, hack. This guy sucks. This guy is the most unoriginal person I've ever seen. I saw that bit before. I saw that. Somebody did that bit. No one would ever say that. A complete original. No one like him in the world. Could he be put in the conversation of those people that I mentioned who are complete originals and unique? Yes, but why isn't he where those people are right now or close? Because it's just a break here or a break there. He does all these pilots that don't go and another person does a pilot and they go. And he's not a guy who is sitting down every day and writing his sitcom every year and writing his movie and his vehicle like that. Whereas somebody like Amy Schumer wrote her movie and for some reason, she got the break, and Judd Apatow heard her on the radio at the KLN, invited her to a meeting, says, do you have anything? She says, yeah, I wrote a script a while ago. Let me see it. And then it's getting made. Kirk Fox, same thing. He wrote a script. It got made, but it didn't get made by the right producers. Right. The fact is, is that I also respect the artists who are doing the right thing and forging ahead and doing their time. I think Kirk's been doing it 13 years, maybe. But Chappelle has been doing it for 23 years. You never know when the break's going to come, but with Kirk, he knows how to book significant acting jobs. He knows how to book acting jobs. He gets acting jobs. But what he also does, which hurts him, is he 
would rather stay in town and work and be the best comedian can be than work the road and make a lot of money doing that. So he makes sacrifices to try to be here for the acting and to be the best comedian can be. And sometimes it's a tough balance. But we all know in the comedy business who's doing the right kind of comedy. And you as the gatekeeper are in a tough situation because there are certain people you got a book that don't fit into that category. And then other people are looking around and saying, why the fuck is he booking that guy? I mean, come on, I've heard the airplane bit before, okay? It's like going to the Magic Castle and seeing magicians doing the ropes and the rings trick. It's like, come on, <laughs> give me a fucking break. But how do they do it? Yeah, I still don't so get it. I think that you're definitely in a situation where you want the best. Sometimes the people who sell out the place are not the best comedians. I've noticed that. And that's a difficult thing, too, because this is a business, but do I got to book the guy who dances around or do I book the guy who does the guitar comedy? I'm sorry, as a sidelight, Jeffrey Ross interviewed Dennis Miller early on in his career and talking about his kids. And Jeff said, well, how would you like it if your kid became a comedian? And Dennis Miller said, yeah, I wouldn't mind. I think I would respect that if he wants to be a comedian. It's great. And Jeff said, what if he wants to be a guitar act? <laughs> And Dennis Miller's like, I don't think so. Moving to China. This is amazing. I don't have to even work. Um, what would you tell a booker of a comedy club that's been there for six years, who's looking at the next phase of his career, who wants to produce things, might even want a venue of his own um, to create a hub to do the things he wants to do as a current venue, um, but wants to do it in his own way? Um what would you tell that person? Well, the first thing I tell them is not to ask that question on a podcast that your boss is going to hear. That's the first thing what I tell you. What if they already put their notice in, but it's way under um, the radar? Well, that's a different story. And maybe won't include this answer. <laughs> uh, I am curious to know. I think the biggest thing is every time you're taking a check, somebody owns you. That's the way it is. So you have two choices in your life. Do you work for somebody or do you work for yourself? You're still going to take checks when you work for yourself. You're just battling out there. Okay, I'm going to do this for this person. They're going to pay me for this. But you're providing the service and they're paying the check based on what you created. The other side of the coin is do you want to work for the man, do all your work, put all your effort in for the man, and have them pay you the check? I've done it both ways. I feel like I've been successful both ways. I prefer to be my own boss. I'd prefer to be homeless as my own boss than to be homeless working for somebody else. So I think the good news is for you is you have in your brain that you want to be an entrepreneur. My advice to anybody who has those thoughts is to develop your plan and your blueprint while you're getting paid by the man in your spare time. Look at what that place that you're working at is doing right and write all the things down that you see that they do that you're like, man, that is a fucking great system. And then make a list of all the things that you see that they do that you feel are not good. And make sure that in your blueprint, you never utilize those systems. 
And so then you plan what you're going to do. Let's say you want to own your own club. You figure out how you're going to do that, find out who your financiers are or how you're going to make it happen, scout locations, look at things secretly. You're not doing anything wrong. You're working and fulfilling your job and hopefully over-delivering for the people that are paying you. But in your spare time, you're figuring out, okay, how am I going to make my move and what am I going to do to make my move? And let's make sure that there's somebody here where I'm working subliminally that can take over for me and do a good job so that I don't fuck over my employer. And then you put your plan together and you get all the things together in action, your financing, where you want to do it, how it's going to work, when you're going to launch, how it's going to happen. And then you go forward with that plan. And when you're ready to execute it and you've signed all the paperwork and done all the deals, then you go into your employer and you say, look, I just want you to know that I want to do something really special. I want to do this. I want to launch something in another six months and I want to put all my attention to it. And I want to let you know I'm here as long as you need me to make a transition. But I feel like I need to make the next jump. And if you respect me as a person, you'll know that I respect your business and I'm hoping that you'll give me the opportunity to help you make this transition and move to the next level because this is what I want to do. I don't want to hurt your business. I want you to be great, but it's my time to grow and I want to move on. And hopefully if you have a great relationship with them, they'll understand it. And sometimes bosses, they get pissed off and they just say, listen, pack up your desk and get the fuck out of here right now. But that's not your fault. You have to strategize what you're doing and how you're doing it because sometimes if you tell the boss early on, there's a chance that they will take you out and then you don't have the money to support you while you get to the next level. So I think that's the key to making it happen, but hopefully trying to your best to keep the relationships intact. Thank you, Barry. Well, Magic Johnson had two words. Can you take us out of here with your own two words of inspiration? I say a few things, so I'll just tell you what I believe are important for anybody. I always say people shit on me for it, but if you're undeniable, you can't be denied. So you have to figure out a way in whatever job you're in to be undeniable. You have to fuck people up. If you don't fuck people up, you're not going to go anywhere. If you don't make that impact, you're not going anywhere. If you're a comedian and your jokes are just, I did a good job, well... That's not good enough. I did a great job. Not good enough. I fucking killed. Not good enough. When you go on, every person in that showroom has to know that you were the best. Every bar back, every waiter, every waitress, every single general manager that walked by, the gatekeeper, the comics who hate you, Everyone needs to know that you were the best. Do that 10 times in a row and get a fucking helmet because it's all over. People be chasing you like your ass is on fire. I think also you have to change the pattern. You alluded to your pattern changing. If you've done things your way for a long time and shit isn't going the way you want, maybe it's time to change a few things without changing the foundation of who you are. And I think the last thing is, is just whatever you do, use every cylinder in your engine 
to create holy shit moments. And if you create holy shit moments, you'll always rise. It's beautiful. Well, I'm going to take us out of here with what I always say, which is all in line with you. Work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. Thanks for coming on, Barry. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com, at jamieflam on Twitter, at GatekeeperPod on Twitter, and Flammy Davis Jr. on Instagram. This episode was produced by Andrew Steven, and a very special thanks to Buddy Peace for the music at the top and end of this and all episodes.